sermon is over. Confession is not a punishment. Punishment is reserved for those who will not take responsibility. That won't confess. That refuse to acknowledge wrongdoing. We all do wrong from time to time and we have to confess that. So it's not a punishment. It's a punishment to be arrogant uh, regarding or that's reserved for those who are arrogant regarding wrongdoing, iniquity, or sin. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you once again to open with me to the book of Psalms, chapter 51, and look at the first three verses as we pick back up where we left off just a few hours ago this morning. We talked about 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Verses 5 through 8 at the conclusion of our lesson, the first part of this sermon this morning. We talked about one that had sinned greatly within the Corinthian church. The body had withdrew fellowship. That individual had came to their senses, had came back to be restored, and the brethren were encouraged, even though there had been harm, to comfort him and welcome him back in. And to realize that what he had been through was difficulty enough. And not to strive to make it more difficult, but instead to extend the right hand of fellowship, if you will, and to be a comfort to that individual. We as brethren need to do that if the situation is ever present. Third lesson point that I want to share with you, picking back up and moving forward in this sermon. Why must I confess my sins? And that word must is really important. That's a requirement. Why must I do this? And I've prepared some thoughts in this lesson point to share with you. First and foremost, we confess our sins to be forgiven. In Psalm 51, starting in verse 1 and going through verse 3, Lord's will, have mercy upon me, O God, according to Thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of Thy tender mercies. Blot out my wrongdoings, my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly, that's completely, from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgression and my sin is ever before me. There is no doubt that David sought the forgiveness of God. And then as Brother Cable shared with us just a few moments ago, once again, in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, confession is a requirement to be forgiven. We read that this morning 
It was echoed again. If we confess our sins, He is just to forgive us all of our unrighteousness. We have to be willing also to walk in the light as He is in the light. So we see that part of confessing sin is to be forgiven. Secondly, under this lesson point, it restores fellowship with God. Do you realize that God can and will have nothing to do with sin? Sin separates us from God. God will not tolerate unrepentant sin. And if we're arrogant in regards to this, then we separate ourselves from God. This is taught in Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 2 very, very plainly that sin separates us from God. And we can't afford that kind of separation. We want to be restored back to the right relationship with God and confession of that sin as a Christian is a part of that process. Simply stated, we cannot have fellowship with God and openly remain in unrepentant sin. Those two will not go hand in hand because God cannot tolerate it. If we do not confess our sins to God, then our sin is evident, it's present, and it remains. When we are unwilling to admit our sin, then that knowledge, it gnaws at us. It eats us up inside. It weighs on your conscience and it will eventually destroy you eternally and internally also if we will not acknowledge it. And I refer back to the first Scripture that we started with. And I want to visit this again. In the book of Psalms, chapter 32, verses 3 through 5, Listen once again to what the psalmist had to say. Psalm 32, and starting in verse 3, it eats us up, it convicts us, it brings us turmoil, and the same with the psalmist. When I kept silent, my bones waxed old. It's growing old through my roaring all the day long. You have something that weighs on your mind. It weighs on your heart. You won't acknowledge it. You won't confess it. But it's right there. It's evident. And it bothers you. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. That's the hand of burden. Knowing what is right and choosing not to do, it causes that. My moisture is turned into drought of summer. Therefore, I acknowledge my sin unto thee. And mine iniquity have I not had. I confess my transgressions unto the Lord. And thou forgavest iniquity of my sin. So without the admission of wrongdoing, we are living a lie. Let's read verse 2 once again of Psalm 32. Blessed or happy is the man unto whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit or guile. We live a lie and we deceive ourselves if we're not willing to take responsibility and if we're not willing to confess that to God. Also, we want restoration 
in our relationship back to our brethren. And that once again is in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. And we read those this morning. But we want to be restored back to the church. And we want to have fellowship once again with God above all. And with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And we want to have a restoration of honor. That's associated with being a part of the people of God. And confession is essential to that. When we admit wrongdoing, we state that Christ was right in calling our deeds sinful. We're willing and humble enough to accept that, that His ways are right, and oftentimes our ways are not. Therefore, He's Lord and Master, and we are servant. Also, it allows others to be uplifted and to be benefited by our humility. When you are restored back to God, back to the church, and back to the honor of a right relationship, that's going to edify and build others up. And who knows, perhaps another individual has something that you don't know about that is struggling internally and you having the courage to step out is an assistance to them as well. We are in this life together. We are striving together. And we're looking forward to the heavenly home together. And if you can't lean on me, and I can't lean on you, are we going to lean on the world? Where else are we going to go if we don't have each other? And just like the old song says, where else could I go but to the Lord? So there are some reasons why we must be willing. Scriptural, easy to understand reasons and benefits of confession. Fourth lesson point. Let's pause. And let's take a few moments to think about what confession is not. We've been on the affirmative. What confession is. What's defined within confession? Why we must? The benefits? The essentiality of it? Well, let's go on the opposite side of the equation for just a moment. Would you go with me, please? What confession is not? First and foremost, we alluded to this earlier this morning. First and foremost, above all, if you take nothing from this lesson, please take this. Confession is not a sign of weakness. It does not mean that you are a weak person. And I want to emphasize that. To the contrary wise, it takes a strong individual to admit wrongdoing. Let's think about David. We've read Psalm 32, the first part. We read Psalm 51, the first part. There's an individual that sinned and even though we admire that he had a desire to do what was pleasing in God's sight. The weakness is displayed when we sin, not when we confess. The weakness is giving in to temptation and letting sin be born from that. There's the weakness acknowledging that 
Being honest about that, asking for help, confessing that, and striving to do better, there's nothing weak about that at all. That's a wisdom, as a matter of fact. It's not a time, we emphasize this again, to look down upon a brother and sister, but a time to lend them strength. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6-8. through 8. Build them up. Extend a hand to them. Strengthen them. Treat them the way that you would like to be treated. Disapproval. And the time for disapproval is when a brother or sister is caught in sin and refuses to repent and wants to continue. That's the time for disapproval. When a person will not humble himself or herself, when they want to continue in that life of sin, then comes the time of disapproval. Not when someone is repentant and humbling themselves and trying to do better. Once the realization comes that a person is willing to admit that the deeds were wrong, it's a time for healing. It's a time for restitution. It's a time for coming back together instead of further rebukes. And so that brings us full circle. And we state it once again. Confession is not a punishment. It's actually a good thing that God allows us to confess our sins to Him, to one another, and have an avenue to have them forgiven along with godly sorrow and repentance in our lives. Punishment comes upon the un. Repent, the one who chooses simply not to do any better. Fifth lesson point. What must I do to confess? What's required? Is it a long drawn out process? Is it going to cost you everything? Do we strive to make it as difficult as we possibly can? Do I have to undertake some great feat to be forgiven? What is required? What is detailed and entailed with confession according to the Bible? There's three lesson points that we'll spend the remainder of our sermon on these. First and foremost, you have to have a proper and right heart in the sight of God. Didn't we read that in Acts chapter 8 this morning with Simon the sorcerer? You have no lot in this. Let your money perish with you. She thought you could purchase the gift of God with man and her money. Your heart is not right in the sight of God. I want you to know that previous to that, even Simon himself believed and was baptized into Christ. But his heart, it did not stay in that proper condition. That's a choice that we make, isn't it? That we keep our minds, our spiritual selves, that's your heart. That you keep it focused in the right direction. Confession requires humility. Being a Christian requires humility. You have to be willing to humble yourself because you're going to stumble along the way. Jesus said when temptation comes, it's a promise. Satan's there. He's good at what he does. He's been doing it for a long time. He knows what tempts you. He knows what you reveal to him. He knows what tempts your family. And He's going to try to place those stumbling blocks in your way. And once in a while, we will stumble. 
we have to dust ourselves off, pick ourselves back up, and strive to be on the straight and narrow path. So it requires humility. Worship requires humility. Obeying the gospel requires humility. Have you ever thought of that? When a person obeys the gospel and makes a decision to come down that aisle and admit, I'm a sinner. I've done wrong in the sight of heaven. And I want to make things right. That's not a boastful person. That's not an arrogant person at all. That's an individual that's made the decision to come forward and do something with the free gift of mercy that has been extended. And that follows us all throughout our Christian walk of life. It requires humility. I call your attention, please, to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, and let's read two verses together. Luke chapter 18, and let's start our reading, please, in verse 13. Preached on this not too long ago, but here's an example of humility that would be associated, that kind of attitude, with confession. And the publican, the tax collector, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but he smote upon his breast, and he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, here's the conclusion of the matter. Look at verse 14, please. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Who was the other? The Pharisee. The one that should have known better. Instead of him, this individual went down to his home justified. For everyone that exalts himself shall be abased. And he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Say it once. I say it again. If you want to be elevated in your spiritual life, be just as humble as you can be. Think back. Let's go back in the old Roman days up here in your mind. And let's think about the individuals that have meant the most to you through your life in the church. What kind of characteristics they display? That they stood the test of time. Was it arrogance and being standoffish and not having love? And that's why you admire them? Of course not. All the men and women that are heroes to you through the years, that meant the world to you, maybe heroes not the right term, but meant so much to you through the years and you wanted to be like them. I have several. I have some in this room I have in that category. And they all humbled themselves. And they all extended mercy to others. And they were not trying to make things more difficult, but more easy, realizing again that they would rather be an asset than a liability to someone. And that a kind word does not cost a penny. That we can make a decision to give a kind word to someone who is hurting. When we sin, it's embarrassing to us. But you're not alone. Every one of us have temptations and things that we deal with. So we want to build each other up if we were to be overtaken in that fault. Requires humility. Also, it requires sorrow. Maybe even feeling sorry or having a little guilt for what we did wrong. I want to share this with you. It says it so plainly. Psalm 38 Verse 17 and 18. Listen to what the psalmist says. Puts it so clear. For I am ready to halt. I want to stop this, in other words. I'm ready to put an end to this. I'm ready to halt. And my sorrow, my guilt, 
feeling bad for what I did, is continually before me, for I will declare my iniquity and I will be sorry for my sin. Does wrongdoing bother you? Of course it does. Wrongdoing bothers you. It weighs on your mind. And you want to do something about it. We're convicted. We know God's Word. We realize we fall short. We don't stop there. We're just like the psalmist. You say, halt. I think I'll stop right there. I realize I went too far. Or maybe I was supposed to do something. I didn't see it through. I need to make that change in my life. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to feel bad about it for a moment. Because I shouldn't have done it. I don't want to do it again. I'll let that be continually right here. I've made that mistake in the past and I've learned from that mistake. Now I'm going to confess it to God. I'm sorry that I failed you, Father. I'm weak. Please help me. And I'm going to go forward in my life. And if I can use my experience to assist someone else, I'm willing to do it. I remember when a family member of mine went through a divorce that was very difficult. It was very difficult. But he resolved himself to use that situation to be a counsel to someone else. And through the years, because of his willingness, God has allowed him to be a comfort to those who say, why did this happen to me? I did things the right way and my partner chose not to. Why did this happen? And he can say, the same thing happened to me. Let me tell you how I got through it. Let me sit down with you. Here's what not to do. Here's what made things more difficult. And here's what you need to do. So oftentimes, the things that we deal with in life, wrongdoing, and also things that we are affected by with the wrongdoing of others, we become affected by that. We can use them. It's difficult to see at the time. But we can use them moving forward within the kingdom to assist someone who may go through the same thing. So the trials of life make us stronger and equip us further to be an assistance for others. We have humility and it requires sorrow. How about the hatred of the sin to the point where you're willing to change the direction of your life? We must confess the sin and we must forsake the sin and that's easier said than done. I never stand before you and say that there is not enjoyment associated with sin. There is or there would be no temptation. May I say that again? Satan uses sin to tempt you because it does feel good to the flesh. Maybe it elevates you in your mind. Perhaps it tempts you by the way it looks because that's the way that Satan has been tempting through the years. But if you give in to it, that pleasure is just for a season. And it will destroy us for an eternity. And we want to be on the other side of the coin. We want to reject the pleasures of sin for a season and look forward to the pleasures of the heavenly home for an eternity. And that makes it all worthwhile. Let me share these scriptures with you, please. Proverbs 28, and verse 13. Proverbs, a book of wise sayings. So here's some wisdom from God's Word. He that covereth his sin shall not prosper. That's a promise. If you won't admit it to God, if you're going to choose to be arrogant, the prosperity will be revoked from you. 
God won't let you in those endeavors. He's full of grace. He's long-suffering. He's contained in mercy. But He can't allow you to prosper if day in and day out you're exhibiting that kind of attitude. He that covers his sin shall not prosper, but whosoever confesses and forsakes them shall have mercy. That's a two-fold promise, isn't it? If you cover it, no prosperity, no gain. But if you're willing to be open about it, ask for forgiveness, mercy will be extended unto you. You need that. I need that. We all need that. And we're counting on that as well. I'm never going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and say, please say enter in because I deserve it. I've been so good, Lord, and you know it. Who's going to say that? I don't know that I'll say a word that He doesn't allow me to say. Being the all-awesomeness of God, and I'll be overcome. We're resting on His grace and mercy. We're resting that we were open in our lives with Him. That we respected His commands to the best of our ability. And that we trust in those promises that are associated when we strive to keep those commands again the best that we can. Let me share an example with you. You have to trust God's promise. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 is ever present in our minds in this lesson. He gave us that promise. If you'll confess your sins to me, and we've read elsewhere, if you will abandon them, I'll forgive you. How many times? Well, we could refer to 70 times 7. That's 490. I jokingly said 491, and you're in trouble. But that's not what's being taught there. Time and time again, God is willing to forgive you, but He wants you to learn. He wants you to respect His will. He wants you to strive to do better. But He knows we're weak vessels. He knows that we're resting on His mercy. That does not give us a license to sin. Grace is not a license to say, I'll do whatever I want and God will forgive me because He's good. But if we're striving to be Christ-like and we know His aim, then we would never conduct ourselves that way, would we? We would appreciate that grace. We would appreciate that mercy and we will try to live accordingly. Here's another example in closing. We spoke about the Corinthian church as a whole. We spoke about one individual in particular that has sinned greatly. But let's talk about the church at Corinth as a whole. They had many problems. They had idolatry. They had some false doctrines. They had problems with divorce and remarriage. They had problems with spiritual gifts that were given to them. Decency and order and worship. Understanding the city of government. And God, through the provision of the Apostle Paul, addressed all these and wrote and gave answers. They tolerated sin, did they not? Paul said, expel the wicked one from among you. Don't tolerate it. You cannot. It's going to put a black eye on the Lord and His church and those around you will believe that you're okay with these things. And you can't be. But if that person comes to good senses, welcome them back, please. And show that example of hospitality and mercy as well, just as the Lord does. Think about the prodigal. We're going to sing about it in just a few moments. He's calling. 
Even when you're out there in the mud and the muck, He's still calling. He wants you to come to that state of knowledge. And when you start coming back, when you've made your decision, He comes to you. The Father went out only when He saw the Son coming back. But there's no hesitation. When you make that right decision, God is there because He's been watching and waiting the whole time. The choice is ours. And we can choose to stay out there and He'll still be watching. When we make our decision, He'll come to you. You have to make that repentant decision. The Corinthian church as a whole had done many things wrong. However, I want to share this with you. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. Last set of Scriptures we're going to look at this evening. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And let's read some verses starting in verse 8 and going through verse 11. They had done many things wrong, however, to their eternal credit, they did not wallow around in the mire of self-guilt and self-pity, but they were striven to set things right in the sight of God. And we can commend these brothers and sisters for this standing. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 8, listen to what the Scriptures say. Though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent. This is the Apostle speaking. Though I did repent, for I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry. Though it were but for a season, now I rejoice. Not that I hurt you, not that I made you sorry, but that you sorrowed unto repentance. For you were made sorrowful after a manner that is godly, that you might receive damage by us in nothing. Verse 10, For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation that need not be repented of. Well, that's a sermon in itself, isn't it? You do wrong and you got to repent of that, but when you work godly sorrow, you don't have to repent anymore. You have salvation. You're living a Christian life. And there's no reason to repent of that. Stay on that path unapologetically. But the sorrow of the world will cause death. That's what that worketh. For behold this selfsame thing that you sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you. What did it bring? What did it wrought? The clearing of yourselves? Yes. Indignation and fear? Yes and yes. Vehement desire? Yes. Zeal? Yes. Revenge in all things. However, you have approved yourselves to be cleared in this matter. Godly sorrow. There was wrongdoing. It was spoken about. It was evident. The correction was given. Feelings were hurt for a time. Paul said, I don't repent that I hurt your feelings. I repent, yes, but not that. I'm glad I reached out to you. But I'm even more so happy that you took advantage of the grace and mercy that was extended. And you had godliness in your repentance. And instead of being like the world who wallows and mires and says, how dare someone try to rebuke me and correct me. Have you known someone like that that gets aggravated and mad at correction? 
That's a worldly person. A godly person respects rebuke. God chases those that He loves. He's our Heavenly Father. When we do wrong, He loves us enough to identify it, to tell us about it in His Word, and to have expectation that we put it behind us because we love Him and we want to keep His commandments. Now, confession is a cornerstone to all everything that we have just discussed. We've talked about what confession is. We've talked about what confession is not. We've talked about why it's essential and why and how we must do it. Please realize that His yoke is easy and His burden is light. He's made it easy. So if you have something that you're harboring, again, I don't know. I see the outward person just as you see in me. But God sees the inward individual and He knows. If you have something that you're carrying with you, won't you confess it to God first? If you need to make things right with your brethren, do that as well. Let that be known and put that behind you. Don't carry that heavy burden any longer and move forward in your Christian walk. God has provided furthermore in His mercy this avenue as well and He has extended it to the Christian person. If we're not a Christian, He asks us, He demands of us to be buried with His Son to have no sins remitted in the watery grave of baptism. But as a Christian, we can confess our sins to Him. We can abandon those sins to the best of our ability. He will forgive them and we can be most pleasing in His sight. If you have a need to respond to the gospel invitation this evening, we implore you to do so. Come believing. Come willing to repent. Turn away from your sins in repentance. Confess the faith that you have and be buried with Christ in the watery grave of baptism. Here's some promises. You will rise to walk in a newness of life. God will add you to His church, the Lord's church. You'll be born again of the water and of the Spirit. You set your mind to do what God's Word said and you were cleansed by the washing of water by the Word. Isn't that a beautiful picture? And that's available for all, both Jew and Gentile. There is no favoritism with God. The Gospel is for all. If you're subject, won't you respond? And if you've obeyed those blessed commands and you desire the prayers of Christian people, the assistance of Christian people on your behalf, whatever the need may be, We've outlined it pretty clearly this morning and this evening together. We've looked at what the Bible says, so we ask you to simply do what God has directed you to do. If you have a need to respond, won't you come as the brother comes to lead us in the song of encouragement? What will you do?